You're listening to the Elvis Ultimate Fan Channel Podcast, the channel that is devoted 100% to the life and career of the biggest selling recording artist of all time, with your host, Steve Francis. Sam Thompson was a police officer in Memphis when his sister, Linda, became Miss Tennessee in 1972 and began dating Elvis Presley. Linda invited Sam to Elvis's Graceland home and he and Sam hit it off immediately. It's my great pleasure to have Sam as my guest on the show today. Hi Sam, welcome to the show and it's lovely to speak to you. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. So uh, I suppose the, the, the first thing we can sort of cover is uh, how you met Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. Yes, let's see. Did I meet him? Yes, I did. You know, at my age, you're glad to be anywhere. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah I, my, I mean, I, I, I was the recipient of good fortune. It certainly was nothing that, that I did that was notable you know, to meet Elvis Presley, but my sister was dating Elvis Presley. That, that's sort of the short answer. Um, and she met him and, and, uh, they were dating, but, but, but of course dating in Elvis world was a bit different than what you and I might consider dating. And, uh, but she had met him in July and, uh, you know, I, I was a cop and I was the older brother and that was my little sister. And Elvis was an older man and he'd been married and he had a child and he was divorced. And I was just confident that he was going to break my little sister's heart. So I was very reticent, you know, to, uh, to approve this relationship. And she called a number of times. Elvis loved cops and he kept telling Linda that he wanted to meet me because Linda would tell him about me being her big brother. So, um, uh, but but after a few months and after Elvis won my mother over, which was a Herculean task, you got to remember, Steve, this was the 1970s in the Bible Belt, buckle of the Bible Belt in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. And, you know, Linda living at Grayson was not considered, I guess, the, the, the proper uh, way to go for a young lady. So my mother was very much against this relationship at the beginning, but Elvis charmed her. So I figured, you know what, if, if he can charm my mother and win her over, then, then I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I went to Graceland uh, in, uh, I think it was October, I think November. 1972? Would that have been 1972? 72, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and this is after repeated, you know, request through Linda for us to come over. But I actually went over there and I had to be at work at uh, a stand roll call at 5.30 a.m. the next morning. And we didn't even go over there till midnight because that was the way Elvis lived. So I actually went over there with my uniform on because I had to, I knew I had to go directly from there to work. And we drove to Graceland and uh, went up, went in and uh, Elvis greeted us warmly. And he took us on a whole tour of the house, just my wife and I and Linda. And um, we, you know, we, we, we walked around, we went out to the grounds. He, they didn't have the racquetball court back then, but we walked out to the barn, and as I recall, he had horses out there then, and he showed us his cars, and he had a couple of motorcycles, and we chatted, and uh, we, we had a really nice evening. The way it began is uh, when I got there, Linda greeted us, and we went downstairs into the basement, which now is the uh, 
you know, the, the, it, it has, has been redone with gathered fabric and a pool table, and the, the room is yellow and tile, the TV room. Yeah. And back then, it wasn't decorated like that. It was more like just a basement. And, uh, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning, and I'm sitting there talking to Linda, and the TVs were, were there. And uh, I just felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up, and I turned around, and there stood Elvis Presley in the doorway in a karate gi with a little Greek fisherman cap on and a little tip roll of cigar in his teeth and a pair of sunglasses on. And I just thought that's the coolest thing I ever saw. We're in his house in the middle of the night in a windowless basement. This guy's wearing sunglasses. Yeah. So I stand up and he walks all the way across the room, sticks his hand out. And he says, hi, I'm Elvis Presley. You know, like, I don't know that I'm in his house, but (laughs) that's the way he was, you know? And he was just, he he was charming and he just disarmed you right away. So, uh, we chatted and became friends. And of course he wanted to see the weapon I was carrying. And, uh, it was a model 66, 357 Magnum Smith and Wesson. And he, he loved that pistol. And so, you know, he, he wanted to show me, we, we unloaded it because he wanted to show me several moves that he had been working on in karate, how to disarm a person. And, uh, you know, we just hit it off. We hit it off right away. And I, I, I sort of picked this line up from my sister. My sister tells people that she knew Elvis before she knew Elvis. Mm. And I felt that way because, you know, we came from the same culture. We, we, I, I grew up in North Memphis. That's where Elvis lived. That's where Jerry Schilling lived in Red West. And that's where George Klein lived. And, 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 uh, you know, Marty Lacker, we all came from that, that part of Memphis. It was, a a relatively poor, modest, blue-collar neighborhood. And we ate the same foods, went to the same churches, sang the same songs. And although Elvis was older than me, you know, uh, it, it was just a, a very natural fit for for us to like one another and become friends. And that that's kind of where it all started. And, and so you, your first impressions of Elvis Presley were then he was a cool guy, but you probably thought, you know, he's yeah. just he's just an ordinary kind of guy as well. Well, you know, it's, it's really fun because over the five years that I knew him, Steve, I, I, I can't count the number of times when I would have to just stop myself mentally, pinch myself mentally and say, hold on a second. This this is Elvis Presley you're talking to, because we would just lapse into that two guys type of thing. Uh, I mean, I, I can you know, I, I never. I never say things like, you know, that I was that important in Elvis's life or I was his best friend or anything like that. Mm. But he was certainly very important in my life. And and at one time, uh, he was certainly my best friend because he did so many things for us and he was so good to my family. But I really I really felt very close to him. And uh, and I felt like I could. And I did. I relaxed around him. And and I think that's what he liked. You know, I have a lot of people over the years I've been involved with you know a record company and we've we've uh, i've been around a lot of big stars and i've just noticed that the the people that that stars want around them are not necessarily the people that are always clamoring for an autograph or get a picture made with them they they want to relax and be around people that they can just be themselves with yeah uh, and that was certainly true with elvis presley so h- how did you come to start working for elvis well, it, it, of course, it wasn't long after that that he did mention to me about coming to work for him because, as I say, he loved police officers. And, uh, you know, Dick Grobe was a police officer in Palm Springs, California. And Dick was was at that time intermittently working for Elvis. And, 
taking some time off from his police duties and going on certain tours and then going back to Palm Springs and, and becoming a police officer. And so I sort of had that as a, as a role model, you know, that this is maybe a way to do it. But I wasn't really ready to leave the sheriff's department. Uh, but uh, I started going on tours with Elvis uh, just intermittently and, and not necessarily as security, but just as a guest. But it evolved into helping, you know, out a little bit with Red and Sonny um, and uh, and just sort of hanging around and being involved in the security aspect. And then when I met Dick, uh, it became pretty evident that that would be a, a pretty natural fit, too. But I really avoided um, the, the question uh, for a number of years because, you know, um, I, I had a I had a wife and she was working and. I had a career with the sheriff's department and I had, you know, full benefits, retirement, medical and everything else. And I guess I still viewed maybe working for Elvis as um, sort of a short term situation. It wasn't going to be something that was going to last the rest of my life. So it got to the point where in 1976, when uh, Red and Sunny West were terminated uh, with Dave Hebler, um, Elvis called me and he essentially said, look, you know, I need you. You know, I, I don't have enough security. I've got Dick and you and Dick are, are close and you work well together. And 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 I knew Ed Parker pretty well, too, because I had been taking a few karate lessons from him. So he said, you guys are going to be my new security team. And, I, you know, I need you. And when he said that, it just it just clicked. Hmm. You know, he he had bought a house for my parents. He had bought my sister a house. He bought me a house. Uh, he paid for my grandmother's funeral and, and had her buried near his mother at Forest Hill Cemetery in Memphis. We'd been on trips with him. He, uh, His largesse and his generosity and his humanity toward my family had been so great. I owed him. Uh, other than the fact that I liked him and he was my friend, I really felt like I had an obligation to him. And he did need security, and I was capable. So I, I left the sheriff's department and I went full time uh, to work with Elvis Presley, and I certainly don't regret that. That was 1976, you say, was it? Yeah, yeah, June June of 76, July of 76. That was that wasn't long before probably Linda and Elvis parted ways. Um, did Did you have any idea that things were kind of uh, reaching a, a conclusion with your no. sister and Elvis? No, I did not. No, and. And I don't know that she did really at that time. I've asked her that a couple of times, but you know, she indicates she, you know, she was working on their relationship, and um, she had to make her own decisions. Ultimately, they did part ways. It was in, um, I think it was November '76. We were playing the Cow Palace in San Francisco, and that's basically when Linda left and wrote, wrote him a note, you know, and. Uh, Interestingly enough, my wife and I and my sister uh, had been out with, uh, oh gosh, it was Tony Brown and David Briggs and several of the guys in the band. And we had taken a day trip to Sausalito and we were out just sightseeing. So none of us had any idea this was going to happen. And um, of course, Linda has her own story to tell. And I I certainly don't want to preempt that, but it had something to do with with Elvis dating other women and, and that type of thing. And so he, uh, he had Ginger Alden in, uh, and I didn't know that either, but Ginger had come in and was actually staying at the hotel. And, uh, I, that I've been told at least. And, uh, I guess when Linda figured all that out and then Elvis, um, spoke to her about going back to Memphis, she knew then she told me that it was over. Mm. So, 
it was uh, it was a bit of a of a shock to me. It was kind of in, uh, interesting from the standpoint of how I found out because uh, Linda told me before she left, just very cryptically, you know, that she was going back to Memphis and that she and Elvis were having some problems. And then, you know, a day went by and it kind of rippled through the, all the guys, you know, that Elvis and Linda had broken up. And uh, Elvis called me up to his suite in San Francisco to talk. And I, I really felt like, well, I might be getting my walking papers here, you know. Mm, mm. But, you know, Steve, I had worked it out with the sheriff's department that I could go back anytime I wanted. And uh, I was very fortunate uh, to have a career with the department. So I had sort of made my mind up, uh, you know, if he needed me to do that, I'd do it. So we walked in and we were in Elvis's bedroom and I just preempted it. And I said, look, Elvis, I said, I know this could be an uncomfortable situation for you. And if it is. You know, in, in a position that, that that like this is one of trust and security, I always figure you carry your resignation in your breast coat pocket. So if this is uncomfortable for you, it's okay with me. We, we, we'll still be friends, and uh, I'll go back to the sheriff's department, and, you know, it's fine. And he broke up laughing. He said, that's not why I called you up here at all. <laughs> he said, I called you up here to tell you I, I wanted you to stay. And I said, well, well, I want to stay too, but you know, I, I want it to be, I want it to feel right between us. He said, no, 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 it's fine. And he said, you know, he gave me a big embrace and everything and actually pulled a ring off and handed me a ring, which he did many times. That was sort of his modus operandi, if you will, uh, when he was maybe apologizing or explaining something or trying to tell you how he felt about you, he would like to give you things. And uh, so we had a moment there and I told him I would stay with him as long as he needed me, and and he appreciated that. And we moved on from that. And we used to have a saying in the South that blood is thicker than water. Yeah. And, and I, I used that with Elvis, and he laughed. And, and I, but I told him I said, you know, I'll, I'll never betray my sister, but I won't betray you either. You know, I have I'm, I'm a professional. I had a job to do, and uh, and I was always proud of the fact that I stayed in my lane. You know, I just I just did my job kept my head down and I didn't embroil myself in any of Elvis's relationships. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It was, you kept them completely separate. Uh, the fact that, okay, he had dated your sister and now they'd broken up, but you were still employed by Elvis to do a job. Right. Uh, that's right. actually, that's, that's, that, that's, a, that, that, that's a question though, but I think you've always, you've already answered it. Did you consider yourself an employee or a friend? You know, I, I I considered myself a friend and an employee. It's it's a unique situation. You know, Elvis didn't hire people. You didn't answer an ad in the paper and go in for an interview and fill out an application. You know, he he hired people that he knew. Uh, he knew he he had a relationship with everybody that was on his payroll. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of the guys called him boss and I didn't do that. I just always called him Elvis. I just couldn't bring myself. Yeah. I knew him, met him in 72. So I knew him three and a half, almost four years just as Elvis, you know, a guy that would just come over to my house and sit down and play the guitar and eat dinner with us. And uh, he was just Elvis. And, uh, so whenever I went to work for him, I noticed that some of the guys would say boss. And that, that just, that word just didn't fit well coming out of my mouth, Steve. So I just, I just called him Elvis. So, you know, I respected Elvis. I respected him and I, and I honored him and he was, he was my employer, but that was in a, on a formal sense, on a everyday informal sense. He was Elvis Presley. 
Uh, I was there to, I, my, my job, I was there because he needed me to be there. He told me that. So my job was to protect him uh, and provide security uh, and, and to be as good a friend to him as I could possibly be. So I guess I would mostly look at myself as his friend, but I certainly was his employee. Hmm. You uh, you mentioned actually he, that he'd come over to your house and play the guitar and so forth at times. There is actually a tape. Yeah. There is a tape, isn't there? A uh, quite well known tape of uh, yeah. him singing songs at your house and also the funny um, poem as well at the end about the robin. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, November seventy three, about a, about a year after I'd met him, and he had bought us a house uh, that summer and uh, just around the corner from Graceland and. Uh, he he just came over one one night and uh, he had given me a, a guitar, an old Gibson that uh, was was in uh, in his house, and I was actually sort of trying to learn to play the guitar. So he get, he just said, "Well, I've got this old guitar; you can have it." It's, it was an old Starburst Gibson. So I had that uh, in my house, and I had a little Sony tape player, and I was learning to play it. And you know how you'll re- play something that you record and then play it back and. How yeah. does this sound? And what did I do right or wrong? Yeah. And I was doing that when he came in. And so he asked me, he says, what are you doing? And so I showed him what I was doing. And he just laughed. He said, give me that guitar. And so he just took the guitar. And of course, the tape was still running. And uh, ended up with about, what, 40 or 50 minutes, I think, of chatter and jokes and songs. And so it was uh, it was one of those moments where, you know, you don't plan it, but it just happened. And uh it was it was bootlegged, unfortunately, in, in Europe for a number of years without my knowledge. And I finally reached an agreement with um, BMG, who owns the FTD label, and they re-released it uh, as, as a settlement. Uh, because I have to remember at that time when I discovered it, I had been a judge and I was a lawyer and I had been in the record business. So I understood what the law was. Yeah. So I contacted BMG in New York and uh, we reached a settlement. So there was no litigation or anything, but they re-released that under a, a different title called Made in Memphis. And one of the provisos was that I would be able to write the liner notes. And I, so I did, which actually explained precisely where the, the tape was made, the recording. And uh, and it's it's it was a treasure because it, it, for me, you know, it's, it's a treasure for a lot of people in, in many different reasons. But for me, it was it was a. Uh, it's a treasure because I can still hear my mother and father's voice on yes, the tape. Yes, that's you know, right. And, and they're, yeah. they're, they're long since deceased. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, another thing, actually, uh, on music and recording and so forth, were you present at one of the recording sessions he did at home in Graceland? Uh, I think it was October 76. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, when they brought the RCA trucks in. And, and, and yeah, you got to remember that and this was actually right after I think I'd gone to work for Elvis. I think they, I think they came in earlier in seventy six too. Uh, they I'm did. Not they did two sessions. They did one in February yeah. seventy six, another one in October seventy six. Yeah. I tell you, the reason why I'm asking is a lot of fans want to know. Can you remember where Elvis stood in the jungle room for the recording sessions? My recollection is um, uh, he he stood on as as you come. If people can remember. There's a set of stairs that come down the back stairs directly into the kitchen from the landing above. Yeah. And uh, he would come down those stairs and then and he would stand in that general area up there. And the musicians were um, um, were sort of as, as those steps go down, the musicians were there. That's where, as I recall, David Briggs and Norbert Putnam and 
James and the rest of the goes, those guys, the musicians were down there. And of course the RCA tables and trucks were, were there, you know, and Felton Jarvis was there. Uh, my, that's my recollection because I remember he went up and down those stairs several times making jokes. At, at one time he carried Jeff, Jerry chef upstairs and gave him a bunch of shirts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then at one time he, uh, uh, he, he came downstairs dressed like a gangster with a submachine gun and, <laughs> <laughs> and expressed his displeasure with the sound. <laughs> but he he was a bit of a, jo- a bit of a jokester like that. Yeah, I, I say you've got a lot of fun times and memories at working uh, and being Elvis's friend. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and I was actually present at uh, the Stack Studios in December '72. Right after I'd met him, I stopped by the Stack Studios when he was uh, recording there. And the first song I ever heard, because I really wasn't an Elvis fan uh, as far as his music, you know, uh, I, I tell people I wasn't a fan of his music, but I became a fan of the purse of the man. Uh, and then it morphed into appreciating his music. But the first song I ever heard him sing was Promised Land uh, that he was recording. And so that sort of became one of my favorite songs that he did. Were you, were you um, present for all the stacks or just a few of the stack sessions? Just the one in December oh, and, right. uh, and probably not the whole session there. I just came in, you know, to sit there for a few hours and visit. But, but I was there and I was there in, in um, July or I'm sorry, in, uh, um, in, in uh, 76, I guess I was, I don't really know how many sessions I was present at, mm. but I was probably three or four. Mm. The reason I ask about the December stack, stack session is because there is a rumor that he was trying to record the Waylon Jennings song, We Had It All. You don't recall him trying that, no? No, no. And, and again, that you know, I'm, that wouldn't have been my purview. That wouldn't have been something that was discussed with me or would, I wouldn't have known that. But uh, And, and I, I had just met him a month or so earlier, and I was just still in awe. You yeah, know? <laughs> yes. And, uh, so... <laughs> so. You obviously had many sort of private conversations with Elvis. Um, there's a lot of people think that he said, especially sort of 76 onwards, that he was tired of being Elvis Presley. How did he How did, did he ever discuss his fame and, and uh, with you and, and his way of life? He did. And, 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 and he certainly was not tired of being Elvis Presley. He loved being Elvis Presley. Uh, you know, I mean, we all get tired from time to time, and touring was 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 grueling and grinding, and uh, we, you know, we. Uh, but uh, but no, he he loved being Elvis Presley, and uh, it's kind of an interesting little story. But we were talking one night. We, were, as we often did, we would sit upstairs in his bedroom, and he would like to sit there and sit in a lotus position most of the time on his bed. And you'd sit in a chair and just visit with him. And, we did that a lot of times and we would talk about different books that he had read, you know, and he was inquisitively minded. So he read, he, he, I mean, he was very much a fundamental Christian, but he read books on, you know, uh, Eastern religions, Judaism and, uh, and all sorts of things like that. And, uh, but that night he was in a mellow mood and we were just talking about uh, how we were on the road and, a lot of the guys, you know, we'd go out to different restaurants and things like that. And he said, well, you know, sometimes I wish I could do that, but it would just be a mob scene. And I said, well, you know, Elvis, you've got this old panel truck in the back here. And I said, it's nondescript. Nobody knows, you know, who it, who's it, who it belongs to. 
And I said, we could put a baseball cap on you and a pair of sunglasses and you and I could go out that back gate and we could get out and go someplace. And, you know, you, you sort of get out of the house. And he, he looked at me and he says, well, what if some of my fans see us and they won't know it's me? <laughs> and I started laughing yeah. and I said, well, that's the point. Yeah. And then he started laughing, but, 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 you know, without it being said that, that what, what the, I guess the, the thrust of that conversation for me was, and I saw it so many times later when I dealt with other people who were in the music business, you know, their fame is so important to them. That the, the truth is, sometimes they do want to maybe go out and be unrecognized, but if they stay unrecognized, they know their career is over. You know, if you don't know who they are. Yeah, I I, I remember a famous thing that Elvis always says. You know, somebody asked him early on. You know, does he get tired of people mobbing him or asking for his autograph? And he said, the time I'll get worried is when people stop asking me for the photographs and the autographs. You know, that's right. Yeah, and that's true with any artist. It was true with the cores. It was true with with Josh Groban or, or Michael Bublé, we signed both of those guys to, to our record label. I signed them. And, you know, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, mm. uh, your, your fame and, 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 and your privacy. But, but the, 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 the accurate answer insofar as I can tell you, um, uh, is that Elvis Presley never tired of being Elvis Presley. He was, he was extraordinarily grateful for what had happened to him. And I, and I think until the day he died, quite frankly, Steve, he was still a little bit in awe of that, you know, because it, it, it hit him so quickly. Yeah. Um, and, um, and he, I think he, he spent his entire life, um, you know, playing and, 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 and really uh, trying to live up to the fans, everything that they had done for him. That's all for this week. In the next part of my interview with Sam, we discuss the medications Elvis was taking, Elvis's last night alive, the heartbreaking scenes Sam witnessed at Graceland on August 16, 1977, and the events of the following days. Sam also talks about the casket photo and much, much more. So I hope you can join me next time for another episode from Elvis, the Ultimate Fan Channel. Mm-hmm.